A well welcome to all our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. We have previously concentrated on our research about anti-Semitism in Hungary. We have completed this research and published a two-volume set of books on the subject titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality. In our current research titled Attacks on Christian Communities and Institutions, we are undertaking fieldwork in a number of countries in the EU, Middle East and Africa. Our research in Poland was completed and we traveled to Iraqi Kurdistan at the end of March. We next plan to do research in Jordan, Jerusalem and the West Bank. This podcast is part of our new series focused on the Middle East. Today, on the 19th of January 2024, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jürgen Bühler, who is an ordained minister and physicist and the president of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. He graduated in physics from Ulm University and moved to Israel in 1994, completing a five-year research project at the Weizmann Institute of Science and earned his doctorate in chemistry. He joined the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem in 1999, served as a national director in Germany from 2001 to 2011, and later became an executive director in October 2011. This is part two of our discussion with Dr. Bühler. My name is Sharon Sugar. I'm a researcher at the Danube Institute. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a distinguished fellow at the Danube Institute, and Diboya Lubitsky, a researcher at the Danube Institute. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Buller. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Ms. Sugar. In a recent interview, you mentioned that you have two sons who serve in the IDF. Although they were born in Israel, they are permanent residents and are not obligated to serve. It is unusual that Christians serve in the military in Israel. No, it's not unusual at all, but it is uh, a phenomenon that actually was highlighted uh, even in this current war at the moment, that you, you do see a surprising number of, uh, I believe, the, the research that we have been, uh, been doing, it's, it is somewhere between 70 to 100 uh, young evangelicals that grew up here, were born to evangelical parents. They are not Jewish, but they made a point to voluntarily join the IDF. And I see this with uh, two of our boys. Um, the oldest one, we got our prominent residency when he already passed the army age. But the other two boys who uh, um, were with us, for them it was no question at all. They wouldn't even ask us, should they go to the IDF or not, even though they didn't have to do so. But they they realized it's part of the normal Israeli life. They felt at home in Israel. They understood this is the country where they were growing up where they will live their future, where they're getting married. And so it was without any questions that they are going to uh, join the IDF. And I just talked recently with our boy who, after he joined, is in a fighting unit. um, And I asked him, after a few months being there, he said, I'm I'm not sure that this wasn't a mistake because it's so boring and every day you do the same things and all that. So I asked him just uh, a few days ago when he was coming back home from Gaza. I said, so Simon, how are you doing this? Uh, uh, I, I know you, you regretted that you joined the army. He says, Daddy, I don't regret it all anymore. I says, now I know why I actually joined the army. Because what Israel is doing right now in Gaza 
It is not only important for Israel, but it's also important for Germany and for many other Western countries. And I think that's an attitude where you have uh, among many uh, evangelicals, and you might be surprised there is, uh, I was sitting uh, the other day at a pastor scattering with a Nigerian pastor, and he said out of his Nigerian church, only his few churches that he oversees, more than 10 young boys uh, of his community, they are serving in the IDF, and some of them in fighting units. And they say, this is our privilege to serve the nation of Israel in such a way. So it, it shows you and it underlines that, uh, um, you know, that it, it's not just a commitment with the mouse, but um, it is a commitment that is really lived in the day-to-day -day, uh, activity on day-to-day -day life. And uh, in that way, you know, I'm proud of our kids because it's not something I convinced them. On the contrary, I said, told them, I said, don't join the army just because your dad is doing a certain type of work. He says, no, no, it has nothing to do with that. We want to be part of the IDF. I would like to ask uh, something about Christian Zionism. Because could you tell our listeners what uh, this really means and how does the Christian embassy practice Christian Zionism in everyday life in Israel? Well, Christian Zionism, in a way, is the belief we, we, we I actually rather prefer the term biblical Zionism because that's where it goes down to at the end. It is the belief that we believe in the promises uh, made in the Bible and you find them in, if you if you go through the Tanakh and every, every single prophet speaks about a future restoration back to their homeland. And even in, uh, if you go through the writings of the New Testament, you see that uh, both Paul and also uh, Jesus himself, they spoke about a future restoration of the Jewish people. So um, they never had the assumption that the church had for centuries, that the church is now the new Israel and will replace the Jewish people. God is finished with Israel. On the contrary, it's highlighted everywhere that it's an eternal covenant that God made with them. And in a way, I believe the, if you looked at the early church that was established, which, by the way, was a Jewish church here in Jerusalem, um, there was no question or idea about replacement theology. They all believed there is a great destiny for their own nation. And then, over the century, the church lost it somehow and became anti-Semitic and turned against the very people that actually established their own faith. And that was the tragic part of our history. So I believe biblical Zionism in a way, believing in the promises, believing that this is a land that God bequeathed to the Jewish people as an internal inhabitant. It's not a special doctrines of our days, but it's, I believe, what the, what the early church in the early uh, first century believed. And it is something that is everywhere in the Bible. I believe it should be. Uh, the standard approach uh, to Israel for all believers around the world. Just two days before the Hamas massacre, International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem led a group of Christian pilgrims to the Negev and along the Gaza border fence to dedicate the Christian Embassy Nature Park. Could you elaborate why this activism was so important? It was very important on many, many different levels. Uh, first of all, we, in a way, you can say, adopted the Gaza envelope area over the last 10 years or more, because this was a region, you know, you have to understand Israel completely withdrew from uh, Gaza. 
You know, people who speak about the occupation of Israel, of Gaza, that's nonsense. There was no occupation force at all in Gaza. On the contrary, um, um, even my son is telling me now when he comes out of Gaza, the way how people were living there, you find them some of the most luxurious places, he says, uh, in Gaza that he, that he saw there. And it's, they had incredible international aid and fund from uh, European Union, from America, from Arab countries. And the only way how they used that fund was to shoot on a consistent way rockets over to Israel. And we have personal friends in places like Faasa or Be'eri. And uh, we vis visited them sometimes and we were there when rocket alerts came. And you know, it's different than here in Jerusalem. And we have the siren here. Uh, I know I have around one minute time to run into a bomb shelter, which is still a short time. But if you lift down there in the Gaza envelope, those people literally, they had 10 seconds time to run to a bomb shelter. And uh, we just felt that Christian community, we need to stand with those people. We need to support them. We built over the last uh, 10 years maybe 200 bomb shelters in, uh, in the area around Gaza, uh, put them in front of supermarkets, schools, uh, bus stops, because we felt those people need every protection that they can get. And um, at this year's feast, we wanted to show our delegates what it means to live, live there. And it's, you know, the amazing thing about this community, it's not a victimized community that complains about their lives or complains even about the government. This was one of the most spectacular communities that was, number one, they wanted to live in great peace and collaboration with their neighbors. My personal friend, Ophir Lipstein, who was one of the first casualties on that day, he was the community leader of, of uh the Gaza community of the the Otef, um, the Shah Hanegev Regional Council, and he had a, the vision of a industrial park right there at the northern part of Gaza, where they wanted to hire ten thousand Palestinians, give them access to uh, university education, give them access to some of the high tech companies. Basically, he says we want them to have the exact same life like we have the same opportunity. His dream burst on October 7, but we didn't know that this would take place. We wanted to take our people down there and show them this exceptional community that really had a vision for peace, a vision for the future. And on the roads that we were driving two days earlier, less than 36 hours later, they were covered with dead bodies, dead children, dead women, raped women. And it was for us... Uh, in a way, we took this as a declaration of war also against our war. Of course, we are not fighting in any military way as an organization, but we told our people, it says, we are standing with Israel in this conflict until the very last day of the war. Uh, we want to continue building bomb shelter. We are supporting um, people, our families, that their soldiers are, their family, they, they have their their kids going to the army or their, their husbands going to the army. Uh, we built, I, be, I think we purchased just over this last few months, I'm not sure, five or six ambulances for different places. Uh, we just inaugurated yesterday another ambulance uh, that was used for those, for, that is being used for this area. So it became a very co personal conflict because some of the people that we know, they got killed 
A very good friend of mine, Shai Helme, she is a former member of Knesset. Um, I called him on October 7 in the morning. I said, Shai, how are you doing? And he was in panic. He said, Jürgen, I'm sitting in my bomb shelter right now. He was living in Kfarasa. He said, outside Hamas terrorists are killing people. He says, please pray for us to survive. I don't know where the army is. I don't know how we can get out here. It took the army almost 30 hours and they, until they could get him out. This was one of the most catastrophic days in Israel. And, and in a way, we just missed that catastrophe, thanks God, by 36 hours. As we are an institution from Hungary, I'm interested whether the Christian embassy have contacts with the faith church or other Christian or Zionist groups in Hungary. Um, I'm a very personal friend of, uh, of, of a joint friend of Shandor, uh, of Shandor Lemet, of course. I know him. I visited him a, a number of times. And of uh, uh, Andras Patkai, I think, is a, a good friend of, of ours. He's doing amazing work also for Israel. So we don't really have a full-fledged branch or office in Hungary. It's one of the few uh, European countries where we do not have a branch office, but we have very friendly relationship with uh, Faith George because for the simple reason they, like us, they stand very clearly with the people of Israel. And my next question would be, can you share with our listeners who Messianic Jews are and what they believe? Messianic Jews are... In a way, you find them in the Bible, the very first apostles uh, in the Bible, Paul, Peter, John, they all were Messianic Jews. That means it's Jewish people who um, received the revelation or came to the knowledge or to the faith that uh, Yeshua, that's how they called him back then, uh, that he is the Messiah. And that means it's Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's one of the touchy subjects here in Israel today, but in a way it represents the very roots of our faith as Christianity. And I think it was the big tragedy of uh, the Christian church that over centuries they have forsaken those very roots. They have forgotten that Paul, that Peter, that uh, the first Christians that started Christianity, that took the message out to Rome, to India, to Spain and to places like that, were Jewish believers. And uh, instead of being thankful for that, um, they de developed a hostile relationship. So even today, you know, we, we have very close relationship with Messianic congregations. And sometimes people uh, said, oh, you cannot be too close to them. It's a touchy issue. In Israel, it says, we have to work with them. Otherwise, we repeat the same mistakes like in the past that we disconnect from the very roots where we are coming from. And so in a way, it's a, a new group of people today also, you know, that um, it is something that did not exist for almost um, 1800 years maybe. And that comes back today where Jews, they celebrate their Jewish identity, they celebrate all the Chagim, they keep Shabbat, they eat kosher, etc. But... Uh, they share with us their faith in, in Jesus. And so that's a very unique and a very exciting development today. Yeah, it's very, just to carry that on a bit, it's very interesting that in the first 200 years after the time of Jesus, there was great fluidity between followers of Jesus and, and the more traditional aspects of, Jew, of Judaism of the time. 
But over time, after those 200 years, it was like a very bitter divorce between the two. You had to choose one or the other. So Messianic Jews today, um, from the late 19th century, are really trying to, seem to really be trying to recreate something that was common in the second century, but has been gone for a very long time. Is that a, an accurate portrayal? And what would be the motivation for trying to recreate um, something that has been gone, as you say, for a very long time? I think, first of all, it is true. And um, if you if you look where the preach was taking place, I believe there were um, two key events in the early church history that really caused this rift or this separation of uh, the Jewishness of Christianity. You have to understand, you know, the the uh, the early church that we read in the New Testament, they. Um, they wouldn't even understand what you mean about Messianic Jews. Of course, if you believe in Jesus, you must be Jewish because the whole concept of Messiah, the whole, uh, if you read, read the book of Romans, there I think only in that book 140 quotes or allusions to the Old Testament, the whole faith emerged out of their Jewish tradition and their belief. The big question they have, well, should we open it up also to Gentiles? They had no intention in the beginning. They thought this is a nice Jewish messianic club. We found our Messiah and they were hoping for the restoration of Israel. That was the very last question they asked to Jesus. So when are you going to be establish your kingdom for Israel? It was a very national oriented uh, faith of uh, messianic Judaism. And um, that it, it took another turn. I think there were two major categories. This was the year 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And not only that, but if you look in the, you can find this also in history books, and I think even Wikipedia has an article on that, in the time between 70 to 115, from Titus to Hadrian, when they controlled uh, Israel, uh, around two-thirds of the Jewish population was being uh, eradicated. And the same was true, by the way, if you read about Alexandria, if you read about Damascus, Wherever Jews lived, the, the Roman population, because of the Jewish revolt in Israel, Jews were persecuted wherever they lived. And that means already by the end of the first century, as we're entering into the uh, year 100 plus, uh, the amount of Jewish people in the church was radically decimated for the reason that the Romans killed them and the Gentiles survived. And you see this even here in Jerusalem, 125 was the last time when you had a Jewish bishop here in Jerusalem. You know, the seed of, of faith uh, turned over to a, a Gentile Christian, um, which would have never been imagined 50 years earlier. They would have never thought that this would take place. And then leadership slowly was handed over to uh, um, um, uh, Gentiles very quickly, actually, I believe by the year 150, um, only a small minority of Jews were still in the leadership of the church. And when you had the Council of Nicaea, I think this was the second big earthquake. Is That's where this shift was cemented. Constantine was an anti-Semite, and he forbade Jew Jews or he forbade Christians to attend a, a synagogue or to celebrate Jewish holidays. 
He says we really need to separate the two things. We have to invent our own holidays. That's why Christians don't celebrate Passover anymore, but we have Easter and we have Easter eggs and Easter rabbits and all kinds of stuff that was invented back in that time. That's why we don't celebrate Shavuot anymore, but Pentecost. Uh, he says we also shouldn't do Shabbat anymore, but I have a good news for you. He wrote to the churches. From now on, we don't do Shabbat anymore, but Sunday, which was dedicated to the Sunday, Sun God, so that he radically changed the face of Christianity like no one else. And I think this was the beginning of a very tragic history where from now on, even the next uh, generation, uh, St. Chrysostomus and Antioch and others, they started even killing Jews. It started as early as then. And uh, so this is very sad, and in a way, I feel this new part of a re-emergence actually a very healthy process because it brings both sides more together. And I think also, you know, why this is important, it is something that is important for Christianity, Christianity in itself, in a way. That's what Paul writes in Rome. He says, you know, if you go against the Jewish people, you are actually cutting off you the very root where you are coming from. And... If you know a little bit about tree planting, that's the worst thing you can do is to cut off your own roots. And in a way, it helps us Christians to understand, you know, for me living in Israel here and having Jewish friends and going both to synagogue and going to our, our Kehila where we're attending, I gained so much new understanding of the, of, of the Bible and even of my own faith that I would have never got in Germany. And many of the sayings of Jesus for me make so much more sense because I understand the Jewish context where it was given. And I think what's taking place today, actually, it's not only uh, helpful for the relationship of Jews and Christians, but it actually is very, very helpful for the Christian church itself to find its own identity. But <clears throat> out of this split as well, you see it reflected in text, which must be in some ways difficult. The texts like Revelations 2, 9, 3, 9, the synagogue of Satan, John 8, 44, which are interpreted as a very strong condemnation of the Jews. Well, first of all, you have to see those passages, and you have uh, maybe one or two other passages uh, that you have from Paul, where he speaks uh, in a negative way about the Jewish people, but what? What you have to see is that this were Jews speaking about their own community. This were the Gentiles speaking bad about the Jewish people. And if you understand that, and if you go then back to the Tanakh and read some of the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, how they spoke about their generation, it is very similar words than Paul would have used or John would have used because they felt there is a spiritual decline taking place. And, uh, you know, even... Uh, uh, Elisha, the prophet, he called upon the Jewish people and said, you are a bunch of Baal worshippers. Uh, the, the, the book of Revelation says, you know, you are worshipping, worshiping. it's actually a synagogue of Satan because you have forsaken your real faith in the God of Israel. And I think if you see it in that context uh, as Jews criticizing their own uh, family, I would never dare to do that to the Jewish people because I'm an outsider. I'm, it's not part of my community. But in a way, that was the role even of an Old Testament uh, prophet to pinpoint the very difficult points and say, you know, you will really do bad things. And if you don't repent, God will judge you. 
And I think if you see it in that light, actually, it's not so bad, especially because it is balanced out by very powerful sayings of Paul that the calling and the the, the, the covenant with Israel is irrevocable. There is no, he understood one day all the nation of Israel will have a messianic redemption. And that's, uh, I believe, even what combines us with the Jewish people until today. The big question just is, who is the Messiah? We have our view of the Messiah. They have another view of Messiah. And I think you find much more positive thing in the New Testament said about the Jewish people, the negative. And then people, of course, they pick what they like to read or emphasize on. That's a very good point. The Talmudic sages used to teach something, I think, that's been long forgotten, but shouldn't be, that traditionally the greatest enemy of the Jewish people are not the Gentiles, but it's Jews themselves, that they're that those who have turned against the religion or turned against the faith become much more destructive than any outsider. Yeah, and I don't believe, you know, that John or Paul, whatever they said, they had any intention whatsoever to turn the Gentile church against the Jewish people. On the contrary, you know, Paul says, I would be going so far to give up my own salvation for the sake of my people, which are very powerful statements. And, you know, Romans 11 is a very clear, very admonishes Gentiles. say you really need to respect them and you need to love them, even if they are enemies of the gospel. gospel. He used him as an example. I prosecuted the Jews, but I just did it out of wrong knowledge. So don't be against them. And, and I think if he would have known what would have made out of his writings, I don't think he was an enemy of the Jewish people. I wouldn't call it like that. But uh, he was, uh, you know, like if many times, even if, if, you, if you take a Luther Bible or a King James Version, and if you read uh, by Isaiah or Jeremiah, the judgments against Israel and God condemning them, the headline is, God could, uh, condemns the stubborn Jews. And then when he speaks about blessing and outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this and that in great times, the headline is, God's eternal blessing for the church. So you pick and choose what you want, and I think that's what they do also with Paul and with the Book of Revelation. Thank you so much. As an ending question, can you tell us a little bit about the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem plans for the immediate future in Israel? Well, that's a, a very difficult uh, question. We have actually next week a strategy meeting, and um, right now nobody can tell you what is happening in the immediate future. We don't know if there will be a war with Lebanon, um, should this develop, of course, this will be a, a major game changer because this will be a war on a much bigger scale and the need here in Israel will be on a much bigger scale than anything that we have seen today. And um, should there be no war and we go back sooner to, to a normal relationship, to what we have been just speaking about, uh, you know, with Nicaea, this uh, tragic council that took place in 325. Next year, that will be 1,700 years. Since that, we were planning to have uh, events around the world to, um, in a way, speak about those tragic events that were taking place. Um, of course, we have a lot of aid activity that is going on during the year, irrespective of war or crisis, where we help Holocaust survivors, where we have new immigrants, 
We help Jewish people to make Aliyah, to return back to Israel. Uh, we have a lot of educational programs around the world for churches doing television programs. So there's a lot of activities, but right now, um, in this uh, very unique situation, our focus is in a, in a way distorted right now. In a, it's emergency relief and to uh, do our best. And it's not only here in Israel. Um, we have branches in more than 90 countries. I think more than 50 of them organized rallies and demonstrations on their streets to show support for Israel and to rally support in their communities for the nation of Israel. Thank you, Dr. Buller, for being here with us and answering all our questions. Future podcasts will continue to focus on the Middle East and the Gaza conflict from a variety of perspectives. Thank you so much for having me today. God bless.